Welcome to the Acme Conversations podcast, where we explore the world of the moving image and its connections to politics, society, culture, and art. This is a recording of a live event, and it may reference visual material. You can view this on our YouTube channel. tonight I acknowledge that we meet on Aboriginal land, the land of the Kulin Nations and I pay my respects to Elders past and present and Elders from other communities who may also be here today. In thinking about tonight's session about why the future of storytelling is worthy of our attention at this place and at this moment in time I was reminded of one of my favourite storytellers Rebecca Solnit's observation about storytelling in her book The Far Away Nearby. We think we tell stories, she wrote, but stories often tell us. They tell us to love or to hate, to see or be seen. Often, too often, stories saddle us, ride us, whip us onward, tell us what to do, and we do it without questioning. Questioning's at the heart of our work here at ACME, and tonight we're delighted to be partnering with the Digital Writers' Festival to explore the impact of interact interactive digital, sorry, digital narratives, virtual reality, geolocated narratives, and more on the ways that we tell stories, or maybe on the ways that stories tell us. I'll hand you to our chair for tonight's session, artistic director and co-CEO of the Emerging Writers' Festival, um, Izzy Orr Roberts, in just a moment. But first, please make sure that you join tonight's conversation online. Our hashtag is ACMEConvos or hashtag DWF17. And please make sure that you share tonight's sessions with your friends and networks. We're not only broadcasting these conversations tonight, but they're also available to you on YouTube so that you can visit and revisit the conversation. I will hope to see you all next week at our next conversation, which just in time for Halloween is focusing on the psychology of fear and our insatiable appetite for real-life horror on our screens. But for now, please join me in welcoming Izzy or Roberts in the panel to lead tonight's session. Hello. I'd also like to begin by acknowledging the First Nations, first storytellers and traditional custodians of this land, where we are here, the Kulin Nations. Um, I think we're on Wurundjeri land actually as well, the intersect of Wurundjeri and Bunurong land. Um, I think that's a, a really interesting thing to think about too as we're being live broadcast to consider the land we're on but also where we're speaking to and it's going to come up a fair bit in tonight's conversation I believe as well. Um, so as Sophie mentioned, I'm Izzy roberts Orr. Uh, the Artistic Director of the Emerging Writers Festival and of the Digital Writers Festival, uh, which is launching as we speak. This is the first event. Hooray! <laughs> I'll tell you a little more about the festival later, um, but it goes until the 3rd of November and you can access all of it online. Um, thank you to ACME for having us. It's wonderful to be part of this conversation series. Um, I'd also like to say thank you to our interpreters for tonight, Linda and Lynn. They are speaking into the ether so that this video may be accessed in perpetuity. Thank you. <laughs> now, tonight I'm joined by an incredibly impressive lineup. I'm going to introduce them to you in this lovely alphabetical order that we have them sitting in. <laughs> Uh, Seb Chan is ACME's Chief Experience Officer, which is the coolest job title I think I've ever heard. <laughs> He's worked across the globe, uh, leading digital renewal and transformation projects at the Smithsonian Design Museum and driving the Powerhouse Museum's pioneering work on 
open access, mass collaboration and digital experience, amongst many other things. And this is Brooke Maggs, who is a freelance narrative designer and writer for games and VR and other creative industries. Um, part of that work is why she won the MCV Pacific Xbox Women in Games Creative Impact Award this year, which is a mouthful, but very cool. <laughs> it's a mouthful. Uh, you may have seen some of Brooke's work in Acme's recent exhibition, Code Breakers, uh, where you could play one of her latest projects, The Gardens Between, which we'll have a little preview of later mm -hmm. as well. And sitting on my other side is Dr. Misha Myers, who is a senior lecturer in the Centre for Theatre and Performance at Monash University who tells stories of place through digital, interactive and located media, which sounds just as impressive as it is. Uh, in 2016, she made Nobody's Ocean, uh, which we'll also uh, see a little bit of later. It's a transmedia work for smartphones that sent audiences on a journey through Melbourne streets cast as Homer's Odysseus. Which, yeah, wild. <laughs> so cool. Um, and then furthest, but not farthest, that doesn't make any sense, but let's go with it, Oscar Ravy, who is the creative director of virtual reality studio Vertov and the director of VR experiences Ascent, The Turning Forest and Easter Rising, Voice of a Rebel. Now, what you might have garnered from all of those very impressive bios is that all of these folks are genius polymaths with multidisciplinary creative storytelling practices. There's a little bit of a hint in there, I think, about what we'll uncover throughout our conversation about what the future of storytelling might actually look like. So tonight, our conversation is going to be loosely structured into three different areas. I've dubbed them intro, inspo, and future. So the intro is exactly what it sounds like, and we're going to kick it off with Seb. So can you tell us a little bit about the Cooper Hewitt example that you have for us? Sure. So maybe you can run uh, the video now. So this is a uh, project that happened uh, between 2011 and 2015. Um, so I, got, I came over from Australia to help the Smithsonian re redesign its design museum on the Upper East, uh, the Upper East side of New, uh, New, uh, New York. And it was about using museums as a storytelling machine and also giving uh, visitors to the museum the ability to create their own works. Um, so visitors would be given a pen to create with and to record their visit with. And this, you can see here, is uh, the, uh, the immersion room. So this was a project done with a firm called Local Projects, uh, a, a New York experience design firm. And uh, throughout the museum, it was about bringing these collections to life, a historic design collection, and talking about the process of uh, design. So here you're, you're seeing visitors to the museum um, creating their own wallpapers, as well as exploring wall, wallpapers from uh, about three centuries of design that the museum had collected through its um, long life. And what was interesting there was this sense that the museum became a site where the collections created their own stories with visitors and visitors learnt the process of design in the context of the frame of the building. So this was in uh, Carnegie's Mansion House on the Upper East um, side of New York. So if you look from the out, out kind of side of the building, it looked like a very foreboding mansion house. And you come in the kind of side, it's a very playful space now. And I think that, that sort of sense of the, the museum as a site of uh, media making as well as media consumption um, and meaning, meaning, of, meaning of making as well as uh, 
meaning consumption. It runs throughout my work, local, local projects work, and many other people who work in sort of museums work. And it's that sort of, that, op that opportunity coming here and here now to, to turn this, this, mu this museum, that is a museum for watchers, players, and makers in a kind of 2-1, where we, under, where, we where we where we reveal the stories of makers, the stories of players, the stories of watchers, and help people make and create their own narr narratives. So the museum is a narrative site. Fantastic. Thank you, Seb. I think there's a lot to unpack there. Um, we will move quickly through everyone's intros so that you get a bit of a cross-section of everyone's practice um, before we move into conversation. But I think there's, there's quite a lot to unpack there as well in looking at the ephemerality of certain experiences and how that can be meaningful still. Um, so, Brooke, you're up next. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about what you've got? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so this is me. I'm a writer and narrative designer, um, or I sort of just say storyteller because it's uh, storytelling different mediums. So um, I started out as a writer for literature, writing fiction, and it was on the back of a short story um, that I was asked to come and consult on a new project that the Voxel agents were doing. It was the first time they'd done a narrative-driven game. Uh, and they made a point of reaching out to different industries to find um, artists to come in and help them. So they had a number of uh, visual artists come in and do art direction and development with them, and then I was um, in on the story. Um, and then one day a week turned into two days a week, which turned into me being there full time for um, about three years. And so um, that's, I guess, how I landed in games um, and then it was a journey from there to learn um, about more about game design and more about communicating story to the team so I had at one time been you know a writer with a room of her own uh, and then was in a studio with um, you know many different people whose work feeds into the story and the game is equally important to them as well as the story because um, The Gardens Between is an adventure puzzle game with no text or speech. Um, so everything that I write, the player does not see. <laughs> everything that I write is for the team. Uh, so I you know, write profiles for the characters and who they are. For example, there's two characters, Arena and Friend, and I give an overview of you know, who they are and then the animator interprets that, Josh, and writes how uh, Arena would walk and then what uh, actions make sense for her personality. And um, we also had to you know, use colour and sound and um, vignette storytelling to accurately and properly tell story without uh, text or speech at all. And I think I included a, um, a trailer or a video Oh, there's me playing games, <laughs> just in case you were unsure. Um, uh, no, that's right, that's proof, photographic evidence. Um, yeah, so I think this is our trailer, I believe, should come through.
couple of things with the game too is we didn't want to rush players. We wanted we um, we didn't want them to die. So there's no scoring, there's no death, <laughs> there's no um, you know game over repeat. Um, you basically we're encouraged to observe the environment. So we talked a lot about environmental storytelling and also colour palettes. So you saw a couple of different colour palettes in their different levels, and those colours change over time with the narrative tone. And we've had a lot of discussions about what we can and can't portray. Um, and, you know, it's stripped it back. Like the story was really complicated, has become very simple. And the process of telling story and communicating story to the rest of the team in a shared language has been a big learning experience for me uh, on this game. So, yeah. Fantastic. There's going to be a lot to unpack there as well. That soundtrack is spine tingling. Yeah. It was, I haven't been able to hear it in such cool speakers before, so thanks, Acme. <laughs> um, and Misha. Okay. So if I could have the, the slide of Way From Home, the first one. So yeah, I design um, what I call storyscape, so location-based narrative experiences. And I thought I'd just start talking about this piece of work that you see, which is the first piece of work that I made in a digital platform. And it's very different to the Nobody's Ocean work. It was made in 2004, and I guess in that piece, um, and a part of my work as a researcher and a practitioner, interested in storytelling as a method of research. And for this piece of work, um, I conceived this digital interface, interactive interface, as a way of presenting refugee and asylum seeker experiences of placemaking in the UK. And um, I wanted to, um, to capture, the, we, we took walks together um, and recorded audio, took photographs of landmarks uh, that we were seeing along the walk, but we were mapping a memoryscape, a past place and present place onto one another. Um, and so um, the walker is guiding uh, me through um, this memoryscape. And so trying to capture that through this interface, which um, uses shockwave video and, and photographs and audio. It's got a, a game-like um, game -like design, uh, interactive design, so you can interact with it in different ways. But it was trying to create a kind of, trying to zoom into the map in some ways, this hand-drawn sketch map, and present that as um, much as possible to what it looked like. So I'm very much interested in the, the real-life stories of people and, and uh, working with communities. Um, around presenting those in different digital um, formats. This is interesting in terms of ephemerality because this is disappearing and this is my documentation of the work itself um, as it's only available in Safari, you can play it on Safari and it's starting to get fragile and unstable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it pulses <laughs> and then it settles down. It's very alive and interesting what's happening to it, but sad. Um, so the other work more recently is Nobody's Ocean, uh, which as you mentioned, and, and that was a transmedia performance game for smartphone. And it sent, as, as you said, the audience on a journey cast as Homer's Odysseus in um, the alleyways of Melbourne, trying to find their way home. The work was devised with Monash students and um, Chris Haywood as the technical designer and produced by the Monash Academy of Performing Arts. And in it, um, the landscape of the city was augmented by a datascape which combined um, 
media uh, comprised of vodcast, robocalls, fictionalized Twitter feeds, and content drawn from historical ar archives, all experienced um, through various platforms and ways that people use and interact with their smartphones every day. And I wanted to create the sense that the performance was live and for the audience to think it could be live, so, but only using recorded media. So we worked out of the box of an app and instead used the story gaming platform Conductor to push out media through an interactive system that triggered audience, uh, was triggered by audiences' SMS responses to Homeric-style riddles. So right answers uh, prompted guidance from Athena received through robocalls or texted links to internet sites and vodcasts that offered glimpses of Penelope, Circe, and Calypso, um, their narratives in the story in specific locations that you were in. And wrong answers sent out a branching narrative of a Twitter feed of um, the, from Penelope's suitors tweeting on their exploits <laughs> while out on a night out in the city's casinos, men's clubs, and bars. And, and some members of the audience got completely lost on that branch and never returned. <laughs> so I've got a couple of clips. Sorry, we'll come to that page. Sorry, forgot to say. So this is, it's very difficult to present this work to you, and I'm working on how to document that too, because it is totally ephemeral. It happened live, and, and it doesn't exist in another, any other way except in the system. So if you could just play the... Oh, yeah. This is a robocall that the audience <laughs> receives, the first thing they receive. I, Athena of the Fleshy Lies, have come to help you. I can't talk much longer. Poseidon, my uncle, is furious with you for killing his son Polyphemus, king of the Cyclops. So I'll take many guises. I may be the woman over there on the phone, the man cycling by, the homeless woman with her dog cast in the street, or even the masked lapwing beneath the bridge. I take many forms. You may meet strangers, some kind, others will hinder you. But no, you need to get home as soon as possible, your wife and son are being eaten out of home by ill-mannered miscreants. Are you ready? Do you have your headphones on? Are you listening? I'll be by your side, watching over you, speaking in your ear. The gods will put your cunning to the test, read their omens, solve their riddles. Your reply will remove obstacles from your path and guide you on your way. But you'll have one chance and one chance only and there is no going back. Text me when prompted and directions will follow. What to heed, where to go next. I'll send you following winds. If you can play the video, so this next is a vodcast set in Adriani Carbone's tailor shop in the Block Arcade. There you are. She's here. Stay here. I'll go to her. See through my mists. I have to keep going. I have to keep unraveling. The name of this house depends on it. 
the longer I stitch and unstitch, the longer I pull off those wretched suitors. But I can't keep this facade forever. They will find out one way or another, and when they do, I've even heard whispers that you're going to kill Polymarchus. None of them will do. They'll destroy this city. Athena, if I really am to lose my husband and son, please help me. Fantastic. <laughs> I think there's a lot to talk about there in terms of sight and storytelling. There's some interesting parallels. I know that working with the Smithsonian, well, that's really hard to say, um, for example, is um, you know the building and how that influenced the work as well. So we will get into that in a moment. But first, Oscar, what have you got for us? Hello. Um, I'm Oscar Ravy, creative director at Vertop, virtual reality studio based here in Melbourne. Um, I guess I'm the... Um, a two-fold token, a multicultural token here, you know, and the VR representative in the future of storytelling. So yes, we do VR. We, um, we know that augmented reality is the next big thing, but let's, let's try to keep doing VR for a while. Because what we found in VR is a new language, not just a new platform to show and engage users, but also, but also to um, show different sides of the story and show different constructions of characters, different constructions of situations. We can put our audience inside the story world and let them understand who they are by means of what happens around them. I'm, I'm, in, I'm describing it like that because in the current state of, of virtual reality, we have two main flavors. One is the 360 video and the other one is the interactive virtual reality. 360 video is basically film, expanded cinema film. Interactive virtual reality is like a game engine. It, it is a game engine that allows you to create the same sort of experiences that you would get from a game. I assume that we're past the conversation that games are all about fun. What we do with game engines is create processes in which the user engages with, and by engaging with those processes, simple or co complex processes, they understand what the story is about, what the character is about, what the other characters are doing in that story world. So our flavor of virtual reality, the one that we do at Vertov, is the second one. We do interactive virtual reality. We don't rely on the talking head inside the frame. We don't rely on the frame as this repository of truth or facts. We rely on processes. Since we are just starting on developing the language of VR, the grammar of VR, these processes are not complex processes, they are very simple actions, very simple operations, you know, the atoms of understanding a process. And that's what we're currently playing with. So what I'm gonna show you next is a project um, called The Turning Forest, which you can currently see here at Screen Worlds. Here. <laughs> 360, man, 360. Uh, a, which we did in conjunction um, with the BBC R&D department. Shall we get it running? We've got the turning forest, yeah. That's the one. There we go. The turning forest was an attempt to sort of recreate those magical stories that you had read or listened to as a child. 
you get dropped into this enchanted forest where you know you've got some friends you can't see but you know that they're there because you can hear them then something extraordinary happens someone turns up and takes you on a magical ride the user is at the center of the story and what they do propels the story forward when you start listening to the, what the world is telling you you can start understanding who you are in that world vetov make interactive virtual reality experiences and we're really focused on narrative experiences so we like to try and tell a really good story that makes the user feel involved in what's unfolding around them. We try to bring the audience to recall times where they were curious about something or playful or felt adventurous. We specialise in working in a 3D workflow. We make everything from scratch and we work in a game engine to bring all the elements together. In The Turning Forest, we started from the sound, so we kind of started to think, what kind of interactivity can we build into the sound world of The Turning Forest? So actually when you're playing The Turning Forest, you find out that there are um, lots of different things that you can interact with that will enhance the soundscape. So we think of the space as the platform where the story lives. The creature would be the natural center of attention. And then you have the secondary interactions or animations or sounds which are also available to you or to us as creators of the VR story. An element that's unique to virtual reality is your perspective. So it's really important to block out every space and make sure that feels right. We commissioned the illustrator James Gilliard to do the concept art. So he made these incredible, colourful, very graphical looking images. So part of our process is dissecting his work and pulling out the particular shapes and colours, how they can be arranged and make sense in a 3D environment. We believe that by using interactive VR, we're triggering particular in dimension, in, in being a user that transcends just sitting in front of a screen. We can be curious and playful and be in awe, but also start to explore perhaps more mature feelings even. The best thing about seeing people react to the turning forest is for them to trigger that childhood persona, being inside a book and being in that world. Seeing that thing in the glimmer of someone's eye when they take the headset off, that's the best thing. The Turning Forest is currently uh, part of the exhibition Screen Worlds uh, for free, so I invite you all to encourage you to have a, a look at it. Fantastic. Well, now we can kick off and have some real fun. Yay. <laughs> um, so something that I think is quite interesting, um, when we start talking about you know, a title like the future of storytelling is thinking about all of these possible technological advances, shifts in the way that we tell stories, shifts in the content of the stories that we're telling as well. And something that starts to feel a little terrifying as an audience member or a media maker can be the overwhelming amount of options that there are. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways, uh, as audiences, we can be quite invested in the idea of media objects, of consumable media objects being 
just that, being kind of a literal object that you consume, being something that you, you watch and then you, I mean, we've moved far from this now, but put it on your shelf or you keep it somewhere. And it's, we're now moving into this sort of space where the experience that you're having is quite ephemeral. It might be that you, you put on a headset and then you give it back and then you never do that again. Um, and so instead we're collecting experiences rather than, you know, media that's sitting in our basements. Uh, and what I wonder, and I'll, I'll open this question to all of you, um, is how you make those ephemeral experiences meaningful. Obviously you can, but where do you begin to start to think about how you're engaging with your audience in that way? Since it's fresh, my, <laughs> what I just said, I'm going to um, jump in right away. Giving ownership to the user, to the viewer, to the audience, to, in VR, someone started calling the, the audience, the individual audience, the visitor. Any of those names, giving them ownership of part of the process, any part of the process, uh, gives us access to that, that meaningfulness of the experience. That thing of, of, I might not own it materially, but, but my experience with it gives me ownership, which is the same ownership that I might have with memories. And that's so kind giving of agency, maybe? That, that would be an operational understanding. You know, agency is, is how can I interact with this world, the story world. But ownership is that thing that you can still carry with you after the experience has, has passed, mm. right? Like a memory, in a way. Mm. It's interesting with Nobody's Ocean, um, the audience takes away the script in a way on their phone in the text messages. Just realizing that talking, so I mean, it used that a lot. So you keep after the moment? Unless you delete them, but they're there. I mean, you can't, you can access, so you can go back through some of the media, but you can't actually go back and make the phone call into the system again and receive the calls. So, but just realizing hearing you talk about that, there is something there that you kind of, and I, I keep going back to my own phone to actually try and, and uh, document the work and piece it back together through those text messages to myself, you know, in the, in the play testing. But it's interesting because I was thinking a lot about, in, you know, you've got that script in a sense, so that's something you take away. But we were talking earlier about folklore, which of, of the work and because digital is so ephemeral. Mm. And, and I know when I was making that work in 2004, I was confronted with that as I submitted it for my thesis and had to change the instructions on how to engage with it over and over again as the software got updated before I actually submitted for publication. And, um, but it is incredibly ephemeral and I'll talk about object later, which has just disappeared and you know, how we archive that or I think do we archive that and how do question. we, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that becomes, there's, I mean, there's a couple of different elements within that though, aren't there? For archiving mm -hmm. is, um, probably a primary concern of creators, whereas mm. the experience is probably a primary concern of consumers. I wonder, with video games, I suppose mm. it's a little different because your experience might be more in the vein of the pleasure of the text where mm -hmm. you go back and play it repeatedly mm. rather than experiencing it once and then never doing it again. That's mm. true. Mm. I mean, I think uh, with VR, you said something, Oscar, that resonated. Um, that's something that we've discussed a lot with the gardens between is who who is the player or the user or the visitor so who are they in that space and then leaving them space but also not if you know what I mean because that needs to be clear for them to have uh, a, an experience a defined experience in a way but it also you want to leave space so in gardens between 
we have a lot of vignette storytelling and what I mean by that is you see a snapshot of Arena and Friend doing something together in the real world that when put together these all tell a story of their friendship um, and we and the key is finding experiences that are unique to those characters but also because a key part of interacting with the game is moving time. So as a player, you can move time forwards and backwards, which means you're not controlling the characters, you're controlling time. And we had big lengthy discussions about what that means. <laughs> but then um, consequently, because you're controlling time, you're cued into time, memory, friendship, childhood. And then we really considered the objects that we placed to trigger I guess, or hoping to evoke some sort of nostalgia and having a nostalgic experience of childhood and what it was like to have friends when you were a kid and the kind of adventures that you went on and then the kinds of you know imaginative places you went to. But then also thinking of the player experience, um, we wanted people to slow down. We didn't want them to rush through the game either. So a lot of the design and the sound um, and the narrative are all purposefully um, encouraging that kind of experience and that kind of interaction. At the end of the day, you can't guarantee that, that everyone's going to do it that way, but mm. we want, we, we hope people will put on their headphones and sit down uh, or, you know, and enjoy the game and take it slowly and observe. We can't, we can't make them do that, but that's, you know, I think you certainly have, a, have an ideal experience in mind it. of how to pace it. And yeah, that, that really helps, I think, with that um, in terms of then do they take what they take away we can't control but we can certainly have ideas and aspirations about what what we would like people to take away and go from there and surely you wouldn't want to control it entirely that's part no, of the fun because it's pretty joyful yeah. watching people play the game and they say something about it and you're like yeah sure that's great <laughs> I didn't know that but yeah good ex good um, response to the game that we didn't predict so yeah, temporality and interactive media is, is a fascinating right. question but yes I am curious um, just looping back quickly to that question though of audience agency um, it looks like there was a, a lot of freedom within like at least the certain confines uh, within that project that you showed us um, but but what is that like to just hand it over to an audience and go have fun look I think um, you know what's interesting with museums is museums are these physical space space spaces and I guess if I think think about my favourite books as a child. I, I don't so much think about the text, but think about where I was, where I was when I was reading that text, who I sort of was with, and how I was sitting. Was I lying on my bed as a kid? That sort of thing. So there's sort of a physicality to the context. And I think what museums are quite good at is that we we are creating spatial environments that are similar, I guess, to VR environments. That, that create a frame for um, storytelling to occur within. And, and the Cooper Hewitt project was interesting in that we were giving people a tool that allowed mm. them to cre create and manipulate their experience, but also record their, their experience. So when you went home, your ticket had a unique identifier on, um, on it, and all of the things that you had touched throughout the museum, everything was touchable, all the, ob the objects in the museum, um, were touchable and as you touch the lab labels they, they were recorded so you got the ability to play back your, your memories of that visit as well as all of the things that you had created and all of the things you had um, done there. Um, and that was really about creating a, tool, a, a, tool, a, a toolkit for re replaying memory 
but it was one that was very much about uh, changing the spatial environment, changing the way people felt in that spatial environment of a his, uh, um, historic house. It's a bit like you know creating a game world, but it's a physical mm. game world. Lots of tips to, in, lots of nods to immersive theatre that inspired us a lot during that project, and uh, performing arts and that sort of sense of giving agency to the player, the performer, the reader, but also a very uh, grounded, space, spatially grounded one. Fantastic. Let's have a little look at Door into the Dark. Yeah, okay. So this is, this, uh, is a work that was really inspiring to me just, just as I was leaving uh, New York. So this was presented at uh, Tribeca in 2015. It's an, it's an immersive uh, work. Doc documentary, it runs for about 20 minutes. Um, the sense of time changes by a, uh, by a British duo, duo called Anagram. Um, an amazing work. I'll, I'll play the trailer and then maybe I'll talk a bit about the experience of it. This is a labyrinth. For now, all you need to do is follow the rope. When you're blind, there's no sun except there's warmth. There's no blue sky, there's no clouds. There are no walls. There, is no, there are no limits to your world. You are a body standing on something in space. Can you feel the hairs on your cheeks? Are they wide awake? Where are you? So, you know, you're in a state of mind where if one of us falls, we're going to die. You find yourself trying to, to cut off from those thoughts. But at the same time, if you allow yourself to know what the situation is, it exerts a kind of pull. What would it be like, you know, to take a fall? I sense that urge, you know, the urge to surrender, to the void. Yeah, so this, this uh, work is uh, really like a podcast, an interactive pod, pod, podcast. You're blind, uh, blind, uh, blindfolded with a helmet and uh, in uh, the helmet there is a Bluetooth beacon and as you move through this physical environment with no, no vision at all, um, the story un, un, unfolds. It's three kind of stories about people who are blind or who had gone blind during their lives and it's all about 
feeling this environment emerge. Um, there's bits where you have to climb. Um, there's a bit where it starts out with you following a rope and suddenly the rope just stops. And as you move out into the open space, you have no sense of wherever kind of you are and you're only guided by the sound and the smell of the space. And, and what was interesting about this too was that it was highly te technical, but the, the technology was completely hidden. So you had no sense that, that uh, the world was in fact responding to your motion throughout these, these space. And because you couldn't see, you had no, no sense of the space you, you were in other than the uh, stereophonic sound, sound cues. So when I saw this, it, it really started to uh, poke at some, some of the, the ideas I've been having around the design of physical spaces within museums, but also about VR works and about um, also the rise of pod, uh, or the rebirth of pod, uh, podcasts as a viable medium for storytelling and also sort of long, long form writing on, on uh, the web and, and interactive fiction, which, you know, with Twine and other plat plat platforms is really coming back again, which is exciting. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fascinating the, how sound can have such a strong impact mm. in and of itself. And you mentioned the rise of podcasting, I think absolutely. Um, that's a factor. And I know, Misha, that for your work, that really strongly underpins it. You mentioned it before with the Turning Forest as well, Oscar, that that was created based on the soundscape to begin with, and that cued the visuals. And we just commented on the sound <laughs> for the Gardens Between as well. So there, there must be something there. What is it about sound? You know, sensory and sensation, this kind of wording keeps on coming up. Um, you know, it was just in the end of this trailer as well. Um, Could it be... Could it be something about senses that, I mean, I'm stating the obvious, but, but this is what I want to point out. Door into the Dark mm. got premiered at Sheffield Dog uh -huh. Fest the year before, 2014. And the bar conversation around that time had on that side, Door into the Dark, how good, how in, in all the immersive theater conversation and, and, and punch drunk, uh -huh. the, all the usual suspects. And on the other side of the conversation, was the beginning of Notes on Blindness, the film and the VR experience, which started there. It was started in those conversations. And that thing of having um, strong projects or projects that have a strong uh, anchoring on this sensory isolation, I'm gonna say, like, like the one sensory, sensory sense-based path of content production of experience makes me think that, that this thing of experience, the agency, the ownership of, of what happens to me, not what happened to someone else, but what's happening to me as a user, as a viewer, uh, has to do with the, the times that we're living in media making. I think it's interesting too that a lot of um, what we all do has a lot to do with the physicality of the person in the space. So I imagine like just prototyping the exhibition or your work, Misha, you have to think about where people are going to be standing, what they could be looking at, um, and also what they won't look at, but what you need them to look at for the story. Um, especially, you know, in VR, you can, you can choose to look anywhere. Um, but then sound is a great way to help direct attention or to cue people in on what's going on or to set a tone. So we were talking about um, stories writing us as well, because we we kind of are ready, like when we have an experience, we kind of make a pact with the creators and we kind of understand that 
they're going to let us know what we should be doing, um, especially when you're out and about, you know, receiving text messages or even in, um, you know, a VR space or playing a game. People sit down to play a game and one of the first questions isn't, what's the story about? It's, what do I do? <laughs> you know, what, what should I be doing? Please tell me. Um, so we need to make sure that that's getting across and that people feel comfortable with the interaction and sound is really important with that. I mean, in games you have, like, the, the quintessential sparkling tone that you've done the right thing <laughs> and then the, you know, um, but then we've, we've tried, we sort of started there and then sort of paired back and, and found subtler, more nuanced ways to do it. But it's definitely a part of feedback, which is a huge thing and, and orientating um, your visitors or your players as well. I think it's got a practical application there as well. Because if you're, we, we really didn't want to have lots of press X to jump kind of things. We wanted people to slowly figure that out and sound was a good way for us to have that communication more naturally and then I imagine when yeah. you are um, you know trying to convey a certain experience then you would have thought <laughs> so much about the sound and even mm. in this project as well mm. yeah well, I mean I think interestingly muse museums have done sound incredibly poor poorly Gal gallery spaces think about sound last if at all mm. um, and what I hope we'll see over, see over, see over, see over the coming dec decade is museums becoming better at using sound and taking cues from theatre production, um, but also from VR and other media to use sound well, and from video games, of course, that, you know, that the, the sort of sense of video games using sound to or orient where kind of you're supposed to look, which plays out again in, in VR as well. Mm. Museums are just not very good at that. Um, mm. Physical spaces are hard to do sound well in, um, particularly when there's maybe a thousand people an hour coming through it. Mm. But, um, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting work with sound into, sound into public spaces too, which is starting to deal with, with this. Uh, all of um, the way through to using sound, you know, sound being used as a weapon in, in, uh, con in control of riots and other things. So sound is a very un kind of um, deused uh, toolkit, I think, in the museum space, uh, but in design more generally too. Yeah, well, we keep coming back to this question about theatre, mm. um, you know, and I mentioned at the beginning sometimes talking about the future sounds big and overwhelming and very high tech, but some of the roots, I think, in what I would anticipate the future of storytelling looks like takes its cues from some of our most ancient mediums, like the theatre. Mm -hmm. um, the simplicity of you know, a person's voice to convey narrative um, and those sort of early ideas about narrative um, have so many cues that yeah, are necessary and are where really exciting work is being made. I think that is a perfect cue for you to talk about your oh, good. next section yeah, as well. I was thinking it's really all about that in yeah. some ways for me. So the, the object that I'm going to talk about next is Magic in Modern London. And um, it's one of my favorite apps. It's created by the Wellcome Trust, um, developed by Ambler. And if you could show the slide of that image before we show the trailer. Um, the, um, this, with the new iPhone update, has just become ephemeral. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. Um, and it's so gutting to me because this, uh, it's a location-based experience and um, it's something that you collect. It's a treasure hunt. 
I'll play the trailer in a moment to, you know, to understand how it works and can talk more about it. But it's something that I've been doing for years, every time I'm in London. Uh, I've lived in the UK for 18 years, only moved here two years ago, and I've hung on to this um, to kind of revisit these places that I've ended up in London, which I have never found otherwise, some very strange, strange places that, that you get sent to through this. Um, so I'm incredibly gutted that it's, uh, it's no longer available to me. But this is a trailer. We'll see this, and I'll just say maybe a little bit more about it, especially around sound. Is it gone? <laughs> it's disappeared. <laughs> we need an approved waiting dance yeah. while we <laughs> do talk about sound. Now. Yeah. That was ephemeral. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's very ephemeral. Point. It's gone now. I think we have to go over to the internet actually from my my uh, slide. So this is something so. that does come up as well. Is in uh, the more high tech you are, do you perhaps <laughs> set yourself up for more difficulty when it comes to your user experience? I think it's hard. I mean, I think the, it's, in, it's, in, it's interesting that the welcome piece from 2012, five years later, <laughs> is already <laughs> expired. But I think what we're seeing is, you know, Misha and I were talk, talking earlier on about sort of if we treat digital media almost as folk tales, that unless they are retold, the trans, transmission of them will be lost. We can't preserve all of the um, things, but if we think, think, think about... Uh, traditional folk, folk tales, they live through re retelling. Yeah. Similarly, Shakespeare lives on through performance, not through, not really through the text. So in some ways we've gone back to our roots in our old traditions. Because yeah. mm. that's, that's another place where mm. we experience that agency yeah. as the, the user or the... The teller. The, the performer. Teller, yeah. of the you story. become the yeah. performer in it by retelling. So we'll have a the trailer and then we can come back to it. There is an amulet to be discovered nearby. <laughs> Allow your ears and your wits to lead you to the spot. The statues of the cats still adorn what was once the factory where black cat cigars were made. She told me that when people moved to a new house and took their cat with them, the chances were that the cat, which is more <laughs> attached to places than to individuals, would return to its old home. In order to induce the cat to stop in the new abode, you seized it by the tail and swung it round and round. It is said that the cat liked this operation so much that it never went away. <laughs> My life has been spent collecting amulets. Those charms held by the superstitious inhabitants of London to protect them against sickness and misfortune help me to reassemble the collection and I will tell you tales of how I first happened upon those amulets and how they came into my possession. So one of the, the things in the app sounds really important because it acts as a beacon that we used earlier to kind of lead you to these very specific places to find these amulets. So, and, and that's one of the things that I love about the work is the sound experience. And as we were talking about, um, the thing that I find is really interesting about sound is the, the kind of intimate, the intimacy of sound in the ear through the headphone 
And even thinking about you know, theater, there's a place on Bodmin Moor that I remember an archeologist took me to in the UK, which is really interesting, uh, these stones where there may have been performance, this archeologist suggests, um, and where a priest would have hid behind those stones and projected voice um, to the audience. And I think that's something, you know, it's quite interesting about that, how we on stage or whatever, you know, that projection of that voice and bringing it closer. And so um, that's something I really like about locative media and working with audio is having that companion with you that's in your imagination in the same way when you're engaging with a story, a book, or um, that you're carrying that. And this piece, you know, I mean, it, the other thing that I, I really inspired by it is the duration, the way that it kind of has inter entered into my life. Every time I find myself in London with a particular agenda and a moment where I could take a deviation, I find, oh, there's a, there's a dot on the map. Um, and, and experience also this uh, complex layers of time and, and of different kinds of media, which you could see in Nobody's Ocean, this way of trying to put all of these layers of time in place. And they're kind of rubbing up against each other in these strange associations. And sometimes not really, like you saw the black cat statues, maybe you noticed in, the, in one of the image with the, in the black cat. So sometimes places are not really linked directly, but just by some, maybe very fragile link or visual link or, you know. Um, so that's something I loved, the different things that I loved about that, that work, yeah. I'm really curious about um, specificity. It seems mm. to be something that we keep coming back to. And one aspect of, you know, futures of storytelling that we, we haven't entirely touched on yet is connectivity. So thinking about a community, I mean, we're speaking at the launch of a digital writers festival, which is theoretically, um, people could be watching us from anywhere across the world right now because we're live streaming. Um, but on the other hand, we are joined by all of you lovely folks who are in the room with us. Um, and I wonder how different the experiences are of live streaming from at home to sitting in the room with us. Um, and part of what happens with connectivity is being able to find an audience for a relatively niche thing. Uh, it's perhaps best demonstrated in podcasting or music, something like that. You might make a podcast that has a listenership of three people in Melbourne, but find that there's people in Alabama that just really love your podcast, and then there's like 3,000 people listening to it. Um, so I, I wonder if this specificity in terms of what you're creating like, is that driven in how you think about narrative as well as design for your user? Is that something that you think about for creating that intimacy with the person that's experiencing your work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's about differentiating the different contexts of experience. I and mean, I also think about uh, watching people, the, the more recent tradition of watching people play multi multiplayer video games through streaming platforms. It's super weird to me. Um, <laughs> and also that sense of, uh, with video game culture too, people watching people play video games to play the story, that, that, that it's almost separated from the experience of playing. Um, so, so in also designing museum experiences too, you know, you're, you're designing these experiences that happen physically here or in a located space but then have a resonance beyond that. Um, and I think what's beautiful about the welcome piece is that it generates a curiosity around exploring what is in their collection that disassociated from the app sits in a database 
And what they've created is a story around what is effectively literally a physical database. It's, it's stuff in shelves, in boxes on shelves, in fact, with catalogue records and, and, and that spread across multiple sites too. And, and so, so the ability to use di digital tools to knit not, not only together things that are in dis dis disparate places, but also people um, is fascinating. And connect fascinating. them in that and connect them. space. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's lovely when people connect to one another over what's happening because, I mean, you know, when you usually can visit a museum with people and then if you encourage that interaction or if not with strangers, yeah. you know, that would be really interesting. And, and this is where I think museums have struggled with audio. The audio guide is that mm. sing, sing, yeah. singular person experience doesn't play well with the multi-person visit if you bring your family and your friends along and you're all in your little bubbles. Mm. It's a bit like the, the walk, Walkman was in 1984 um, versus, say, the uh, boombox yeah. as a social list, list, listening experience with the boombox. Uh, boom what is the sort of boombox version of VR <laughs> is the question. Yeah, the sort of mm. multiplayer immersive environment that is forced out into the world. You know, the boombox is the thing that takes <laughs> over the park what is that? Maybe that's like a flash flash mob VR. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's that sort of thing. Disco in yeah, yeah, silent dis yeah. disco in yeah. vision goggles. But the opposite, the, the value of the opposite is also true. Mm. Being able to be with yourself. Yeah. Right? Mm. Not be connected, not be with the lot all the time. Have a bit of a personal desert. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Well, that as well. <laughs> um, be on your own, which, for example, VR has been criticized. It's an easy target for the problem of isolation. Mm. But isolation is not a bad thing per se. If you, can, if you do open your book and you put it in front of you, most likely the social cue is, I'm onto something, mm. yeah? I'm busy and I'm having a moment to myself, with myself. Uh, so I reckon those two things are kind of counterpart, mm. counterparts to each other. Let's connect, let's make meaning out of that, let's spend time on, on our own, and let's mean, make meaning out of that. Uh, in, in VR in, in particular, uh, like I said before, you are either at the center of the story world, so you could be the protagonist, but not necessarily, in the, in the usual you know, traditional model of storytelling. You could be the protagonist, but not necessarily. Um, that moment with yourself mm. is that fringe between understanding who you are in the world, which is the public persona, and the things that you do and the, and the rippling effect of your actions tell you what you are. But also, from that fringe inwards, you know who you want to be, you know, the self, the ego. I want to do these things, and I only have so many tools. In the case of VR, interactive media games, we create those, we recreate, we construct those tools, and we give them the, that fringe uh, territory. Mm -hmm to merge those two versions of yourself. Uh, we play with that all the time. Well, it starts to raise the question of what we consider connectivity to be. And I think that that's something that comes up within all of these. Um, it's interesting what you were saying about archiving. With There's both sides where you know these digital stories have to be retold in order to be kept alive, but at the same time, they're bringing to life old archives. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you know we've got this flip side with connectivity as well, where is it isolation or is it connecting to someone in just a different way? And maybe we don't have the language yet, I don't know. But um, mm -hmm. um, perhaps so we can have a look at your poem that you, you brought in. Right. Um, Let's do that. 
So I brought this, po this poem by Chilean poet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are two bread rolls. You eat two, I eat none. Average consumption, one roll per person. Two sides to the, to the poem. If you approach it through this mathematical accuracy, you could say, yeah, it makes sense. There's a statistical truth there, and I abide by it. Then there's this other side, side to it, which is I'm making an interpretation that's tacitly implied there, that I ate none, uh, and it could be you that, that was the one that received none of this, you know, the total. When we play with digital media, when we play with interactive media, because of the nature of digital media, we have that, that accuracy, that, that you know, there is a factual uh, precision to the things that we do, how the machine performs, how much it costs, what, what, what it entails to bring it to people. That all has costs and material, material considerations. But then there's also what we do with the language, with those machines and with those distribution systems. In that translation between the language that we play with, which is you know, the art of it, and the material dimension of it is where this poem lives. You know, that's that thing of what are you actually saying? Do you want to let the machine talk? Do you want to talk through the machine? What are we doing? Because it's a procedural-based system. So because what you're making is essentially um, has to be coded and code operates in a procedural way, then the way that you think about how players interact um, or visitors interact has to be pr procedural at the end of the day. They will do this and they will do this and they will do this. Um, and so um, understanding the procedural way of doing things, you set up systems and then you have to think about what you're saying philosophically, artistically, with the systems that you set up. You know, so I, I think that is what you're another way of saying what you're saying, um, basically. So, you know, what what does a game where the systems are moving time, um, you know, by doing actions that involve this and this, um, and then procedurally to get through a level, you need to take you know the lantern to the flower, go back again, do this, go back again, do that. So these are all procedures to solve the level, but ultimately the way that you do that and the meaning that you imbue into those actions um, is the artistic yeah. side of it. So it's like, well, why am I getting light from flowers? Well, <laughs> we'll tell you. Um, so, and the idea is that light, you know, leads into the phrase. So we think a lot about the metaphor of the systems that we create, um, which sometimes those systems are narrative systems. So how are you going to deliver the dialogue? When do you trigger it? When do you trigger the sound? Um, if a player decides to walk off in the other direction, what dialogue cues do you have that are in character that get the player back on track? Um, all those kinds of things as well have a, have a technical base. So you need to talk to the programmer and say, so if they go over here, I'd like for this kind of narrative thing to happen. Um, and then, you know, the way that that happens is, is an artistic decision. So yeah, the, the tech and the art sitting together is resonates with me, for sure. Do you think there's broader narrative possibilities now that there have been certain advancements in tech? Like, 
You were just mentioning before we started talking, Seb, a, a magazine that used to exist that had printed versions of the code that you would take home and put into your computer. Yeah. We've moved quite far beyond that and there are in fact tools now where you don't necessarily have to know how to code in order to make something that's interactive. So it's kind of interesting because I think what, one of the things I've noticed with video games particularly is that over the last, I don't know, long, long, long time of video games now, uh, many decades of video games, video games are now being designed that you will finish them. So I remember growing up with video games that you abandoned and unfinished, much as you might abandon books on your reading, reading, reading pile by about chapter five if they've not captured your attention. You'll tell all your friends you finished the book, but you haven't actually finished the book. That kind of thing. That, that, that it's interesting now that story, storytellers are designing a sort of user experience of their book or of their game that intends you to finish the narr narrative. But in physical spaces, like a, a city-wide locational game or, a, or, an, or, um, or an exhibit space or even with some VR works, that sense of controlling the player to a completion point is something that's still being played around with. And, and the more cues there are from the outside world, with location-based games, there's always going to be people going to go off track because something else happens in the city that's more exciting than the game. Um, or, you know, with a video game too, you're sitting playing on your couch and the door, door, doorbell rings, you go, get, go eat dinner and you stop. You know, there's sort of, there's sort of yeah. challenges of how you keep the player playing or the reader reading um, that, that have in the past been about con controlling the context, either through social cues or by programmatic means. But now it seems to be built more into the story design. Um, you see this with television too, that you know, now Netflix has more data of when people stop watching a show uh, in a serial that they will make cues in the narrative structure so Australians don't turn off at episode four because we keep watching after episode five if we get to episode five, whatever it is now. You know, that, that sort of di digital uh, data about readership or data about reading pra practices starts to inform or player practices beginning to inform how we create stories around yeah. this. And you can definitely think about what your um, approach is to those when you're making those experiences. So you can sort of all agree in the studio, our character's gonna say, you might wanna put your headphones on now and then <laughs> jump back into character or are, are we going to have like a little logo in the corner that says you might wanna put your headphones on now and because yeah, you do need to find a way to cue that experience or in VR make sure perhaps people are looking in the right direction mm. for, for something and that they don't miss something. And when I say the right direction, I don't mean like, I believe that people can sort of look wherever they want and the story should theoretically hold together, but there are probably narrative set pieces that you would want people to see to, to convey a certain amount of meaning. So, yeah, I think that's really interesting and in how do you direct people's attention and how do people drop out of the museum space or, you know, just go, I've yeah. got to go to the mm. bathroom, coming back to pick up this later or... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, I mean, it's something I'm, I'm sure Misha has got... Mm. How yeah. do you, How do you with do that? with that? <laughs> well, yeah, we had people drop out and come back in hours yeah. later, and um, we're monitoring. It felt like the Wizard of Oz, and you know, monitoring the progress. Um, but yeah, I mean, there were, as you were speaking, <laughs> that, that testing over and over the procedural. We had, you know, because it was text messaging was the way that people were communicating mm. with the system. Um, sometimes 
uh, I remember the first person that started into the system got very poetic with their Homeric language back at us, and that broke the system down completely. And I had to deliver the performance on the phone with them in order to get oh, them through the whole journey. It was about a three-hour journey, really, <laughs> um, for those moments where it was a call, um, and then we could trigger the system manually. But that wasn't really the way it was designed to work. Um, but yeah, so that's, I think, you know, so we had to go back and, and play test some more and work out how to kind of limit it. And I think that's the interesting thing that, you know, trying to make it feel like you have agency also and, and, and uh, latitude, but at the same time, you're working within this system. And I'll talk about another piece later, <laughs> which, you know, interests me for that reason that it's, you know, it's playing how it kind of sends you signals in the narrative world or yeah, right. the metaphors. And I think that's what you're trying to, you know, find as a way not to break the world, mm -hmm. but to keep it going. Yeah, how to call them back. Time. So okay. let's have a quick look it's at her story. story. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. Can we get up her story for Brooke? The future is really short now. Okay, no worries. <laughs> I, I, I can be quick. Um, so her story is a game that really influenced me um, in the way that it's told and played. Um, so we might run the trailer because that will, um, uh, yeah, explain. <laughs> This is the third day my mum called me. It's not difficult to play. You you basically um, pull up like a very old-looking desktop, and you're placed as a detective who basically gets all this video interview footage. Um, you can sort of queue up about four at a time in the queue, and then you can search the videos um, by keywords. So in this example, she says murder, um, and then you search. Hmm, that's going to be interesting murder and then it can only bring up four videos that contain murder but there might be others but you don't know so then you can watch those and you have to piece together if um, you know what first of all what's happened if she's guilty or not um, and then you know um, go through it I guess step by step and what I loved about it is I got really into it. I started tagging all the videos and then that kind of wasn't working so I got a pen and paper and started <laughs> writing down what I think 
has happened. And so it doesn't actually tell you, tells you many different stories because it's very clever in the way the game design works to queue up certain videos at certain times throughout the experience. So the first one is, you know, murder. I didn't, you know, da-da-da. So you're like, okay, she, she seems pretty innocent, da-da-da. And then the next one is, I'd like to see a lawyer. And you're like, hold on a minute. And then it just constantly... I constantly changed what I thought was going on. So a lot of the story writing was happening out here. So I was trying to piece it all together. And it was amazing because I got into it. I started writing down, you know, uh, theories about what, what was happening. And it was pretty inspiring that way because you're positioned as a player at a desktop computer. You know, that is your job. You know, you're placed in the world as well um, in that way. But also... Um, you know, the way that you're positioned, you have an omniscient view, I suppose, so you're, you're kind of cobbling all that together, but at the end of the day, you're retelling yourself what happened. And I don't think there's any superb clarity to it either. You mm. kind of just get to the end and you've seen all the videos and you, by that stage, you're pretty sure what's happened and I won't, won't spoil it, but um, it's got a killer twist in it and, yeah, it was just phenomenal in terms of changing what I thought games could do with storytelling. Because it was, you know, videoing this one actress and putting it all together in a very simple but deceptively simple way, I will say. Yeah. Mm, yeah. I wonder what ways in which we're sort of training audiences to think differently about narrative now. Yeah. Um, and finality, I don't think, is something that people always expect so much anymore. Even looking at the nature of serial storytelling and how that's shifted uh, in terms of not having to play everything in a linear fashion, where there might be 10 episodes and they're half an hour each, but playing them all out of order and it's still the same story and that's fine, episodic structures over the course of it. That's um, how curious. It's, it's giving the, the user a role in your production mm. that you already had before, that we've had in different media, in different capacities. Uh, database storytelling, that, uh, database mm -hmm. narrative, yeah. is outsourcing the editing. Mm. So all those films could, could end up on the floor of the editing room, but they're put in front of you in giving that makeup of an operating system on mm. OS, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, for people interested in database nar narrative, Lev Manovich mm -hmm. wrote mm -hmm. the language of new media from that angle. What is this interactive experiences that we have in which there is no such finality, mm. but many different versions. And one of his main examples is Man with the Movie Camera by Zigoberto, after whom we named our <laughs> studio. <laughs> um, about that thing of having the experience of the camera and the camera operator out there in the world, then bringing it in and putting it in just the one version out of many, many different other versions. That finality is how we learn to understand film. But for operators that are part of that system, you can see it through, through many different angles and many different versions. Mm. There's a bit of a sense too of not wanting the game to end. You know, mm. you just want to keep playing and, and keep uncovering things. And yeah, I think, you know, there's a sense of that as well. Like people do like to go back and replay and either find all the collectibles or do the same story arc that they liked or try it a different way. Like I think that, you know, flies in the face a little bit of finality perhaps. I wonder though too if, because this, this is like, that's a lot of information and that's something I 
No, I certainly tend to feel with just having like the internet on my phone constantly <laughs> is a bombardment of information sometimes. And there's one thing that's really exciting about you know, the new narrative possibilities that are opening up with you know, interconnectivity, with technologies that mean, even if they're relatively simple technologies, such as um, having an audio track on your smartphone and knowing the place that you should go to listen to that um, in that space. Um, but I wonder if that is confusing at any point for, for audiences as well. You know, there's um, potentially the future that we have ahead of us is full immersion. You know, there's this idea that you could enter a virtual reality studio where you could literally feel every nerve ending in a story. How does that shift it? And does that change the way that you think about narrative? Uh, I think it does, but I think it's also, um, you know, I think, you know, that, that lack of finality reminds me as much of con con contemporary television as staying home from school with days of our lives on. Hmm. You know, it didn't matter what episode, it's like always the same things going on. You know, it's, it's, it's a, these are sort of the, the connections between, say, soap operas and the construction of these sort of story worlds that now everything seems to be creating a story world, cinematic uni universe, whatever you want to call it nowadays. But we, we kind of want those worlds and those wor the, the division between uh, the worlds we create with video games, the worlds we, we create with books and television and, and cinema is all sort of merging now. And, uh, and that's interesting, I think. Uh, and, and, and the tools we have as watchers and players, readers, are now diff different, which allow us to navigate that da database story storytelling in a way that when um, Manovich wrote that book, was just in the very early days. It's really fascinating to see now that, ev that everything now we can scrobble through fast, faster. And in fact, actually going mm. fast forward. I mean, there's those things about people watching television and with the, the YouTube at 1.5 speed, so they can watch more episodes faster. It's like, what? <laughs> so it's, it's, just, it's sort of the um, affordances of the, the tools for play have changed. And or we can consume We can consume more, more or we can consume on and multiple identify things. The yeah. narrative threads through it even so it's not totally overwhelming it's just that our way of experiencing it has changed as well speed watching instead of speed reading yeah right? sure like we can just pick up things um we're going to open up to some audience questions in a moment so what we're going to do because we were going to speak about the future and what i will ask you to all do is mention the project that because um, we don't have time to look through all of the clips so this is going to be your reading list of recommends everyone so get your pens out or your phones that's probably more accurate um, and just let us know what it was that you were going to show us um, so I was going to work, uh, show a little a little clip of um, some work that Superflux has done with Mo Mo Mozilla so Superflux is a speculative design um, studio in London um, and they did this thing uh, for Mozilla about AI bots. So this ex ex excerpt was one which was using a device that would allow you to con control the snark snarkiness of your voice companion to, con to contest your, elect your electricity bill. Um, <laughs> which was about that, that at the other end, there's probably an AI vo voice companion doing the role of the person, the customer service, service bot. Person. So this sort of bot talking to bot, what, what happens when you are writing for machines or creating things for machines to see and read rather than humans and how might they react to things? Mm. 
Um, the one, the example I had is a, an app called Replica, um, which is an AI that understands how people talk, essentially. So it, as it asks you questions, so the idea is that you form a friendship with this AI versus via text message. So it will ask you what you're up to, what you're doing, what you like to do, and you talk to one another. It's based on um, this woman's experience losing her brother, and in order to, um, she went through emails and got people to send letters that he'd ever written and everything, because with AI, you teach it. So you teach how, how to communicate, you teach it a language. And she used all this data that she was able to collect from her brother, um, from his phone, from text messages he had, um, to essentially create an AI that could speak like him. Um, and this, um, over time, adapts to you and becomes a, becomes a friend. Um, and it's kind of creepy. Um, yeah, wasn't that a black, yeah, black, a black, black mirror, mirror episode? episode? Also a black mirror episode. Black mirror episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was, but it's actually real. Was gonna be yes. real life. Oh, yeah, there you yeah. go. And um, I, with you know, facial recognition and biometric data and things like that, I wonder, and also I'm a little bit wary of um, what we can teach our AI storytellers um, about us, but then also how we will then, as the designers, design the AI to respond to, yeah, our audiences. So, you know, you could all have an individual experience with Replica, and Replica will get to know you. You can sort of break it a little bit, it doesn't respond to you perfectly, um, and I haven't tried it out myself, but I've seen a lot of videos of people talking to it over time and trying to break it as, as people do, especially that impulse is a curious one. Yeah. Particularly with AIs, just yeah. wanting to make sure there's still a line there that they're not human yet. That's right. Or something. Yeah, yeah, the Turing mm. test. Mm. Well, mine is interesting, related. It's not an AI system, but it's, it's an app again. It's created by Blast Theory, um, and it's their latest work called Karen. And Karen is a life coach. And once you kind of initiate your sessions with Karen, um, you receive these calls, uh, video um, calls through the app uh, for sessions with her. And um, as the experience goes on, uh, she becomes more and more familiar with you and a little bit needy. And it starts to become like you're becoming her life coach. And she's. And, it, and you're doing this through um, there's a kind of psychological testing techniques of answering questions throughout, and things happen. Um, so she starts to know things about you that you're kind of curious, how does she know that? <laughs> and so it really makes you think about data collection and what you share. And, mm. and also about just, I mean, what interests me in the work is how it's personalized to you. And you get a data report at the end, which explains a little bit about your behavior in the game, which you may not have played in the way that you usually would. Um, but you know, the, you have to make decisions, moral decisions at moments. Um, and it compares you with how other people have played. Um, but one of the things I love about it too is it plays with the, the device of the phone and she nudges you, you know, and at midnight you get the call that the next session is available because it's not, you can't just, you know, go in and have a call with her anytime you want. It's according to her schedule. And so <laughs> if you don't respond, she'll send you another notification. Why are you not responding to me? And she gets quite persistent if you don't engage with her. So. Um, I found it really interesting how it feels like AI and, and tailored to you, but you know it's still a system. So that's kind of future, I think, you know, yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Oh, and you get invited to a party at the end, too, Ooh. which you didn't get to go to. <laughs> that should be how every game ends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What I'm looking into uh, in the very near future is, is, is basically already a reality, but hasn't been established as such, <laughs> is the use of volumetric video. I don't know if we have any example from... Yeah, you, you'll see here a mixture between film and volumetric video. What interests me about volumetric video is that combines capturing the likeness of um, a human performance, a live action performance, mm -hmm. while also capturing the information of the gestures of the poses. Mm -hmm. I put this as, a, as an example because when you practice martial arts, shapes are very visible. You know what, what's happening, or a dance. Mm -hmm. But what's happening for you internally is you're learning a tradition and you're learning a language that by repeating it, you become part of it and you understand things that are um, intrinsic. Not, they're not explicitly visual, they're intrinsic to the pose, to the gesture. Volumetric video has a capacity of capturing those two things, the likeness, the visual appearance, while also capturing the motion um, that the performance goes through. I think in interactive media, in particular for us in virtual reality, having access to those two things, the visual likeness, uh, as photorealistic as possible, so you, you break the bar barrier of that's not performing very well or it doesn't look human. If you put that at ease, there, the, the, there's, there's a human component to the performance, while also being able to offer the, um, the understanding, the physical understanding mm. of what the performer is going through, what the actor is going through, what the character is going through, uh, I find that very, very expansive in terms of expanding our, our storytelling toolkit. Mm. All right, we have got time for, I reckon, two really quick questions, but don't worry. We're gonna have a drink after this at the Acme Bar, so you can stick around as well. Uh, hi, I'm a, I'm a journalist, so I'm very interested in nonfiction, and we've spoken a lot about fiction. What about the, and you know, The Guardian, for example, are doing interesting things, New York Times, they have a 360 daily now. What, what do you see as the possibilities and pitfalls with uh, nonfiction storytelling with this, you know, really cool technologies? Well, the piece that I spoke about my earlier work, working with um, real life stories, that's something um, that, that's, my work, my research is really driven by and, and looking at that now, I think there's something, I mean, I'm particularly interested in how the complexity of stories, the multiplicity, the network, you know, that we can, uh, like that piece, if I were to make that now, I would make that a self-generating system where stories could keep being added into that system and really show the complexity of experience. At the time, I could only do five, the amount of time that it took to create a bespoke platform and the resources. So, um, but I have a really clear idea of how that, you know, that self-generating process, what that would add, and that's kind of what I'm looking at with my research here, working with uh, researchers at Monash and thinking about how are we storing data taking you know, 5,000 responses to surveys about, you know, um, people's experiences and how do you kind of make sense of that in a way through story uh, but not simplify it but still allow those real-life stories so yeah that's something I'm thinking a lot, a lot about a lot in terms of the nonfiction quality of, of, of story 
I reckon we, we are at that point in interactive media in which we need to understand what is the indexicality of the thing that we're proposing to the user, which is to say, when, when painting was the only thing of the only medium, the only way of, of capturing reality, the visual reality, uh, that was the way we understood images. We understood things that were away from our immediate um, reality. And then one day, photography arrived. And photography was the one you know, that was carrying the, 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 um, the crown of indexicality. And painting was like, oh, that was fun. What shall we do now? <laughs> yeah. And then we got modernism because of that. You know, photography could do that thing while painting could do that other thing. What's happening with interactive media, digital media in particular, is what is that indexicality? What is that, the, the, the crown that establishes, yeah, okay, I get it. This is true. This is nonfiction. Just taking an example from, from the arts world, is it because of the, of, the, of the people proposing that? Is it because of The Guardian? Is it because of New York Times? Is it what in, in the arts field is the um, institutional theory of art? If something is shown inside a museum, it is art. If something is presented by an art curator, it is art. Uh, or, you know, that's, that's the big thing, the institutional thing, low-level thing. How do I understand that, that this thing that I'm doing is the nonfiction part of it? You know, the, 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 um, the process of being in, in, inside a dimly lit warehouse is how someone understands the process of becoming blind. Yeah. That thing is something that we're kind of still trying to package. Yeah. Hi. Thanks very much. It's been very interesting. Um, I was interested to ask about drama. So if I think of a, a, a normal story, I think of, you know, sort of a dramatic moments in that story. And the, the one that sort of really leapt out was the one where you were in the dark with mm. that, and then this, the rope rang out, ran out. That was a dramatic moment. But I wonder if... Um, some of the panel could give examples of drama in the in this version of storytelling. I'd be really interested to just hear what sort of examples um, of how you introduce drama into it. I mean, I think in you know video games we've got very good at that, and video games that there's a, I mean a lot of video games that the AAA titles that you play now, uh, you know, they're very very constructed in 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 a way that is about those peak peak memorable moments. So there may not be drama in a more, more traditional sense, but there are a sense of the player having a dramatic um, engagement with the work about creating a memorable piece about it. Um, I, th I think our sense of what those dramatic moments is is now being spread out across a much larger time frame of experience and play. Uh, you know, some of these games last for 60 hours of play time. And so how do you create a rhythm of enough drama at an, enough frequency to keep you playing? Because the story has to run for 20 hours with, the, with just the main quest and the sub-quests are like, you know, extra bits. Um, it, it's quite a skill to create that much as you might do it on episodic te television over a 13-week run. And so I think... Um, the expectations of what drama is from the from the audience, if the audience, the player, the watcher, has also begun to change, and so um, the that intensity of emotional engage, uh, engagement is quite a thing. And as we design these spatial 
these space, spaces like museums too, you know. Do you want dramatic moments in your museum visits? What might those be? How often do you want those? What is the length of your museum visit? Is that just the role of the works you're seeing or is it the role of the museum to create a theatrical framing for those works? Mm. And that's some of the stuff we're working with here as we re redesign this building and the new exhibitions we have com coming up. Trying to play with that theatricality more. But to build dra drama into a non-sort of linear narr narrative, I think, is a skill that we learn from games, we learn from um, uh, locative media, uh, we learn from a lot of art now too, uh, mm -hmm. performance. A key thing also is, is what, what do we do with the user, mm. right? Not just as a receiver, but if we're following the, the usual archetypes, mm. are they going to be the protagonist? Are they going to be the antagonist? Are they going to be the shapeshifter? Mm. What is that thing that we're doing for them? And I reckon that's where drama starts happening or starts exceeding the medium um, in its traditional form. In Nobody's Ocean, we really thought a lot about the urgency and how to kind of keep that urgency in over a long time. And I think that was one of the challenges of the form and people can drop in and out of it. With the Karen example, those nudges were the thing that, and the twist, you know, it really twists and changes and it pulls you in. So yeah, there's different ways, I think, playing with time, a sense of the objective of the, the story, the game is creating urgency. Yeah. Mm. Um, with the gardens between, because we wanted it to be a peaceful kind of meditative experience, when I was coming in and going, okay, what's the conflict? What's the drama? <laughs> where, where the outer wants versus inner wants? Like, how are they changing? You know, I had a lot of this storytelling language that I would come in with. And because, um, because the game design objective is to be calm and to look and to, you know, not feel rushed, um, there, there needed to be story tension, but then we didn't need that to translate to I'm having a stressful game experience. Um, so we, we've used colour to, to create drama and, and a brewing storm that you see at the start there that, that happens over time. So a lot of those, you know, quite well-worn narrative techniques for, for drama um, are in there for it to, to build over time. And because we have no text or speech, we do lean on those um, quite heavily, um, but it's also a way to convey that things are moving forward, that things are happening and things are changing and, and you're, you're going to find out more and, and that drama will be delivered on, yeah. And that's the joy with having so many tools in your workshop, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> so, thank you so much for joining us for the Future of Storytelling. <laughs>